Let us pray. Gracious God, give us humble, teachable, and obedient hearts, that we may receive what you have revealed and do what you have commanded. Guide us, O God, by your word and Holy Spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover peace. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. The first reading is taken from 1 Kings chapter 19, reading from verses 9 to 18. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came, and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael, king of Aram. Also, anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king of Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel-Meholah, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet, I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. The second reading is taken from Romans chapter 11, reading from verses 1 to 16. I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know about what scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left and they are trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. What then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly, they did not obtain. 
the elect among them did, but the others were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes they could not see, and ears they could not hear to this very day. And David says, May their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see, and their backs be bent forever. Again I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world, and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? I am talking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I take pride in my ministry, in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Sinesha. Does anyone else think Sinesha has a wonderful reading voice? You have the most authoritative reading voice. I want you to come to my house and tell my children when it's time to go to bed. Oh my goodness, if you told me to jump off that thing, I would do it. So, there's a lot going on in that passage, and unfortunately, or fortunately, um, I'm just going to focus on the first couple verses and the story from 1 Kings. I just don't think there's any way to cover all of it. I don't know if anyone's ever read uh, any of Salman Rushdie, a famous kind of international um, author, often associated with the UK. Um, He was educated partially here and comes from a Muslim background, um, but is an agnostic. Rusty is famous, as you might know, not only for his writing, but because uh, in his book he um, said things that really angered um, some, some branches of Islam, and there was a fatwa put against him, and he had to um, live in hiding for much of his life. He was recently actually attacked uh, at an event. Um, so this is a man whose, whose agnosticism, whose, whose beliefs, he has really stood by, and he's paid a radical cost. Um, for his beliefs. Someone that I think you can respect regardless of whether you agree with him about faith and religion. Um, But with all of that said, I was really intrigued to read this in an interview with him, with this man who who has paid such a price for his agnostic beliefs. He said, there is in human beings a need for something that is not material, a thing that gets called spiritual beyond our physical being in the world. We need exaltation. If you don't believe in God, you still have the need to feel exalted from time to time and consoled, and you still need an explanation. And you need the other things that religion gives you, which is community, the sense of something shared, a common language, a common metaphor structure, a way of explaining yourself. Religion provides all of that to people who can have it. Now, if you can't have religion, then those are big absences that you have to find somewhere else. That's the whole. 
We might be used to hearing about sort of angry atheists on the internet that seem very self-confident, but this much more reflective, self-critical approach is actually very common. If you look at two of the most famous agnostics or atheists from the last two centuries, Bertrand Russell and John Stuart Mill, they similar, similarly both had moments where they described places in which their agnostic worldview sort of broke down. One of them spoke about how he, he realized that he had a longing for a love that is the sort of love described in religion. Mill said he, he, he had this moment, it was almost like a spiritual experience, where he realized that if everything he had lived his life for was attained. Mill was this great liberal reformer trying to give, uh, you know, equality of rights and things like that. He realized that if everything he was living for, if he got it all, he would still be missing something. The reason I say this, you know, C.S. Lewis kind of famously, famously summarizes this when he talks about his own conversion from agnosticism to Christianity. He says, a young man who wishes to remain a sound atheist cannot be too careful of his reading. There are traps everywhere. God is, if I may say it, very unscrupulous. The reason I say that is not as this sort of triumphalistic, rah, rah, go Christians. Um, the philosopher Charles Taylor, who's written a lot about what it means to live in a secular, diverse, irreligious age, says that all of us, whether you are Christian or Muslim, whether you are atheist or agnostic, no matter what you believe, all of us in modern life are cross-pressured. What he means by that is all of us will have moments like Rushdie or Mill or Russell described where your belief system, your way of making sense of the world suddenly starts to feel under pressure. It seems not to work. It seems like it can't describe all of life. He says, no matter whether you're religious or irreligious in our secular world, you will find moments where you're not sure that your deepest convictions work, where you begin to doubt what you most firmly believe to be true. And I started with these examples of how that happens in a kind of agnostic framework because I'm actually gonna spend the rest of the time talking about one of the places where I think Christians or religious people feel most cross-pressured in our modern world. One of the reasons that many religious people find it most hard to maintain their faith in modern life. And if you're not a Christian, we're gonna kinda therefore invite you into this confessional period and it's something you'll have to deal with as well this feeling of being cross-pressured. The reason I think, one of the reasons I think Christians most struggle to maintain their faith in, uh, in the modern world, I can state rather simply, it is really hard to be a Christian in a society which is increasingly leaving God behind. It's very difficult to be a teenager going to high school who's been raised in a Christian home that feels like if I am going to follow Jesus, I'm going to have to be at times look rather weird to my friends. I'm not always gonna be able to fit in. That's incredibly hard. It's incredibly hard to be a parent who is anxious and worried and that is saying, have we done everything we can? Have we done all the right things? Have we put our children in the right church, in the right friend group, in the right, so that they might just maintain their faith? It's really hard to be a Christian and be a parent in that kind of society. And it's hard 
for all of us, that's at that very kind of personal, immediate level. But it's hard to be a Christian in a society like Scotland, which is called, you know, the country of the book, which has this incredibly rich religious heritage where nonetheless the trappings of religion are still everywhere, where the coronation will happen in a church. And yet to see your friends and neighbors and colleagues increasingly leaving religion behind, feeling like you're holding on to a passe relic from the past. The reason I bring this up is it's in its own way very analogous to the, the existential, existential struggle that Paul is experiencing in this passage. We are in Romans 11 and we've just gone through three chapters, Romans 9, 10, and 11, which are all about Paul trying to make sense of how can it be that my Brothers and sisters, my fellow Jewish people, the peop Yahweh's people, the people that have been have a covenant set aside to worship God, that this people, when God sends his Savior, when he sends his Messiah Jesus, that all of my brothers and sisters are rejecting him. That existential cry of, of how can I make sense of being in a society that should know God and seems to reject him is precisely what is motivating Paul. It's why he begins this chapter asking has God rejected his people? He immediately responds saying that certainly that cannot, sorry, that cannot be it. That the reason that his, 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 his kinsmen are, are rejecting the faith cannot be because God does not love them, that God is not for them, that God is not seeking them. So therefore, he has to make sense of what is going on. And to do so, he recalls this story from 1 Kings, this unforgettable enigmatic story of Elijah. So in this chapter that Paul cites, Elijah is facing what is probably the, the arch villains of the Old Testament. Aside from Pharaoh, probably the, 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 the most kind of villainous figures in the whole Hebrew Bible is this evil king and queen named Ahab and Jezebel. And the chapter starts with Ahab saying something that he knows will absolutely delight his wife. He tells her that I've just gone and I have killed all of the prophets of God except for Elijah. And his wife responds by, saying, by taking a vow. She says, so may it be to me. In other words, may I be killed if I do not kill Elijah as well. And not only does she say it, she gets a messenger to go to Elijah and to deliver this threat to him. It's like a campaign of terrorism, leaving him horrified about what the future will hold. And it's in this moment that Elijah runs into the wilderness and he cries out to God. And we come to the passage that we heard read. He cries out to God on the run for his life and said, I have been very zealous for you. Yet they, Israel, your people, have rejected your covenant, broken your altars, and put your prophets to death. In other words, he too is struggling with this same question. How could your people that you have chosen and loved and saved from Egypt rejected your ways and actually turned against those sent to deliver your message, your prophets? What I think is incredibly fascinating about the way Elijah phrases it and what I think is incredibly therefore relevant to our own struggle with why we live in an increasingly post-Christian nation is the kind of thing that Elijah brings against God. He doesn't say, I love my 
brothers and sisters who are Israelites so much, yet they have rejected you. He doesn't even say you love them so much, yet they have rejected you. He says, I have been so zealous for you, and they have rejected you. Now, isn't that interesting? What he's most concerned about is himself. That doesn't mean he doesn't love his fellow Israelites. I'm sure he does. But what is the core of his angst is he's saying, I'm a prophet. My job is to deliver your message to the people. And I've done it as fervently and seriously and I can, as I can. Does this mean I failed? Does this mean I'm a failed prophet? Does this call into question my identity? And I think many of us are struggling with precisely the same thing. That part of this angst about living in a society that seems to leave God behind is that it leaves us thinking, what does this say about us? Have we failed? Have we not shared the gospel enough? Have we not been compelling enough? Have we not gone to church enough? What does this mean about our identity? Are we failures as well? Paul, in recounting the story, applies it to his own situation and I think applies it to us as well. After Elijah gives this complaint and says, I have tried to do the best I can and yet these people are rejecting you. What has happened? There's this kind of famous moment where God first sends an earthquake and it says he wasn't in it. And then he sends a, 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 a wind and he wasn't in that. And then it sends a fire and he wasn't in that. And then he kind of comes in a whisper in this still, small voice. And God's answer is, I have reserved for myself. In other words, it's not about you. I've done it. I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer by works. Because if it were, grace would no longer be grace. Why does Paul, at this point, come back to this theme about being saved by grace, not by works, not by what you do. The, the question here didn't seem to be about how you were saved. The question is, why isn't all of Israel saved? So why does he suddenly bring up this issue of you're forgetting that you're saved by grace, not works? And the reason I would suggest is this. Legalism, legalism is a term for describing people who think they can be saved by what they do, think they can be saved by works. And we sometimes wrongly think that the only way to be a legalist is to walk around literally saying, I'm being saved by my works. Literally saying, oh, look, look, look at how good I'm doing caring for this poor person, I'm going to heaven, things like that. And that's not what, that's not actually pretty much what any legalists do. Paul is always worried about legalism in early Judaism, and yet when scholars over the last 50 or 60 years have looked at early Judaism, they found that basically no one literally walked around saying, I'm being saved by works. That's not because people weren't legalists. That's because legalism is far more subtle. An example of legalism in Galatians is when Peter, one of the early apostles, had been, he's, he's a Jew, and he had been eating with Gentiles. And then suddenly, his fellow Jewish Christians came, and he stopped eating with them. And Paul said, you've denied the gospel. You're being a legalist. Not because he suddenly started saying, I'm saved by works, it's because he suddenly started acting. There's, like, there's a really good group of Christians that do the right things and, dress, and, 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 and there's a worse group of Christians. Legalism is about the countless subtle, small ways in which we think by acting right, we subtly gain God's love, favor, and affection. And by acting wrongly, we lose it. 
And what I think Paul is suggesting is that our approach to mission, to sharing the faith, to evangelism, is often legalistic. That you can be, and this is a phrase, I'll explain these phrases because I just invented them today, a missional legalist with a missional prosperity gospel. You might have heard this phrase, the prosperity gospel, okay? The prosperity gospel, it's, it's in, in certain churches and in, in the UK and around the world, and it's something that most all Christians condemn. It's the idea that if you pray hard enough, if you have the right sort of faith, if you do the right things, then God will give you whatever you want. So if you have enough faith, then God will make you wealthy. If you pray hard enough, then you'll get a wonderful car or whatever. We know that's not right. That's not how it works. It's not that if you just do the right things, then suddenly good things will happen to you. But many of us, and clearly Elijah, are that way when it comes to evangelism. If we evangelized hard enough, if we used the right language up front, if we were, uh, if, 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 if we were, had enough non-Christian friends, if we did everything right, then surely all of our friends would become Christians, all of our families would be Christians, our nation would be saved. That's being a missional legalist with a missional prosperity gospel, thinking that if you did things right, then everything would be solved. That's exactly the message, the belief of Elijah that God is challenging. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying, oh, yeah, we just don't need to worry about sharing our faith. Or, oh, we just, yeah, we don't need to ask hard questions about how we do things or whether we're reaching out or who we're spending time with or what's going on in church. I'm not saying that at all. I remember recently I was at a small church and we was with a couple others and we were chatting with them. It's kind of a classic sad story, which many of you be familiar with if you're familiar with Christianity in this, story, in this country a small church with not many people, very elderly, trying to figure out how do we move forward. And they were very discouraged. And those of us that were from the outside kept trying to give ideas. We're like, well, you know, have you tried kind of building some community? Maybe you get a tea and coffee time going or something like that. And they're like, we've already tried that. Like, what if you did like an alpha course? You know, something that, they said, we did an alpha course for years. We only had two non-Christians come. What, what if you started a, a home group? And they're like, yep, yep, tried home groups. A couple people came, but didn't. What will a legal, being a legalist, let's forget missional legalism for a second. Will being a legalist make you a good Christian? It'll make you look like one, right? If you, if you say, God will only love me if I go to church every Sunday and if I do a quiet time every day and if I serve uh, the poor, you will look like you are doing all the things. But will you be a good Christian? No. Your heart won't be renewed. You won't be full of the fruit of the spirit of love, joy, peace, patience. Will being a missional legalist make you a good evangelist? It'll make you look like one. It'll make you really busy sharing your faith, will make you really involved at lots of causes? Will it make you the sort of person that gives off grace, that actually presents a compelling vision of who, what the gospel is and what it means for you? See, oftentimes we think that if we just tell people you need to try harder and do more, that will make mission be more effective. I've often found the very opposite, that the reason that church couldn't move forward, couldn't do anything, is because they were thinking, if we don't see immediate, big, huge results, it's not worth trying at all. 
we must have the wrong method. We must have the wrong tactic. We must keep searching for something else. And so instead of investing in the small things God had placed in front of them, they kept waiting and looking for something that would create immediate results. I do wonder if that's part of what this unforgettable scene is meant to teach us. Christians throughout the history have loved this scene of of, of, of Elijah and of these God being, you know, sending a fire and an earthquake and, and, and then speaking in a still small voice. But part of what it means in context, surely, is we think that participating in God's mission will involve being a part of the fire of revival. We think it will look like the earthquake of a society transformed. When in reality, what it often looks like is looking for the still small voice of where God is at work and trying to join him in small ways that won't be exciting or flashy. The end of this sort of um, story in 1 Kings is that Elijah is, uh, Elijah is sent to anoint Elijah. God says, I've, I've reserved these people for myself. There's a remnant. Basically, I'm doing things, but he still has something for Elijah to do. And I think it's a good picture of what he has us to do in participating in his mission. He says, go and anoint Elijah. Basically, what he's saying is, yes, I'm not promising you that the whole nation will be transformed. I'm not promising you that there will be a revival. But what I am calling you to do is to find the person who you can pass your mantle onto, who you can invest in, who you can care for, who you can show something of who God is and who you can send out to do the same for someone else. Being a minister, people always ask me, and I, ha I hate this question, so if you want to annoy me, ask me this week. Um, what is the vision of Cornerstone? What's the grand strategy? What's the plan? How are you going to evangelize all of St. Andrews and Northeast Fife? And there is no plan. Sorry if that's disturbing. This is, this is what it is, though. I've never, been more, I've never been more overjoyed to be a part of this church than when, and this happened a couple times, when I'm on a walk, you know, out on West Sands with someone in our church, we're talking about faith, we're talking about life, and I look over and I see two young undergrad girls that are doing the exact same thing. And when I'm walking back to town, I see sitting outside a cafe, one of the dads and one of the friends from their school that he's hanging out with and connecting. What are they doing? <laughs> they're taking what they've received, they're trying to pass it on, and in that still, small moment. That is how the kingdom of heaven moves forward. And that's how it's been from the beginning. I was reading this book recently. I really recommend it. It's very, uh, very accessible. It's like 100, 100 pages, I think. And Kevin Rowe is a professor of uh, New Testament and uh, the early Christianity at Duke University. And in this book, he talks about what was it that made the early Christian movement so dynamic and so unique? What was it that drove their mission uh, to the world? And he gives a bunch, of, a bunch of examples. One of the key things he identifies is that Christianity introduced a new way of understanding what it is to be human. It introduced a new anthropology, a new way of knowing what it meant to be human. In the Roman world, there was incredibly uh, divisive ways of understanding what it meant to be human. What I mean by that is that in the Roman world, there wasn't an idea that there is just one human nature. There was barbarians and there was Greeks or Romans, and there were almost different species. 
In the Roman world, one of the things he talked about is that in his view, Christianity introduced the idea of the sick as a category of people. Prior to this, of course, there was sick people, but the idea that, that you owe, uh, you, you are obliged to care for someone just because they're sick, regardless of whether they're related to you or their social status or what country they were from, that was an utterly foreign idea, an idea introduced by Christianity that was breaking down all of these ways that people divided society into higher and lower, the truly human and the subhuman. Rowe argues that the root of this new Christian belief was in the incarnation. The idea that if God himself became a Jewish carpenter, then that says something profound about every single human being, something that is far more significant than what country they were from or whether they're a male or female or their social role. And he says the way that this vision was kind of inculcated in this early Christian movement, the way it took root was through Jesus' parables. Because again and again, in Jesus' parables, he tells a story that has a, a twist at the end. You can start the story thinking, of course I treat everyone equally. Of course I think everyone is the same. And then once you get into the, the, the story, at the very end, there's a twist, there's a turn, and you realize that you have this subtle, extremely subtle way of thinking one person is better than another. Perhaps the greatest example of this, he says, is the parable of the sheep and the goats. Because in this parable, it's a kind of allegorical, metaphorical picture of the end of time. And there's a king, a great king, that is Jesus, who is standing and is judging the world. And he looks to the sheep and he says, when you, he, he, he says, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was in prison, you visited me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. And basically they say, we never saw you. When did we ever do these things? And of course he says, when you did these for the least of these, you did these for me. What Roe argues that is so amazing about that story is Jesus doesn't just like associate himself with them. He's almost saying that when you look into the face of a person in need, you see the face of God. That your treatment of them is a directly either an honoring or a dishonoring of me. The dynamism of the early church, what's made their mission so successful, was having a vision rooted in the grace of God that was utterly countercultural, which went against people's assumptions. And, and this to me is the heart then of, even though we can't guarantee our missional success, of what it means to truly and rightly engage missionally with our society. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Um, before Becky and I moved here, we lived in a town called Santa Cruz, okay? Which was a town on the west coast of the U.S. And um, Santa Cruz like, had this very like, avant-garde, kind of like hippie culture. It had been a huge part of the hippie movement, and it was, uh, a, a, it's a surf city, so there's all these surfers. So it was kind of like a countercultural city. And when we, while we were there, about 20 years ago or so, all these companies like Apple started moving in just over the hill in what's called Silicon Valley. All of these massive companies moved in. And so this kind of you know, trendy, avant-garde, rebellious counterculture, like to tell you how rebellious it is, the University of, of, <laughs> of Santa Cruz did not have marks, did not have grades until like 10 years ago. Apparently they were fighting the power and fighting the grades. Um, but this culture started to change. 
because all of these wealthy middle-class people working in the tech industry started coming over and moving into this, this small community and transforming the city. And people, as you will expect, got very angry. And you started seeing these little bumper stickers everywhere. Keep Santa Cruz weird. And that was, of course, something they were very proud of. We want to keep our distinctive culture. We don't want to be assimilated into the way things are. We have something significant that makes our community worth unique, which is worth holding on to. And so my simple message to us today is keep the church weird. I hope you guys noticed the incredible graphic design. It just blends in perfectly. I know you can't even tell what happened, but yeah, I did that. Um, keep the church weird. That is, what, what God says to Elijah is, I still have 7,000 people who have not bowed down to Baal, who have not kissed the idol, who have not bought in to the way in which their culture operates, and that's why they have something distinctive to say and to offer. Keep the church weird. Some of us have unintentionally kissed the idol. Some of us have bought into the way that our culture views family. And we think that, that when we gather around the dinner table, this is our private space for no one else. It's just for me and my family. And while your family is essential in the Bible, you also have a family of God. And all of the world are welcome to our table because all of the world are welcomed to his. Some of us have kissed the idol because the way we view money, like we were talking about before. In the early church, it was very common for church fathers to say, you uh, once you have enough money to care for yourself and your family, everything else you have is no longer yours. You owe it to those in need. That was a common view. Perhaps you've kissed the idol. You're not maintaining our cultural weirdness when it comes to sex and relationships. Perhaps you've bought the lie that you will never be happy without a relationship or that you need sex and you can't get on day by day without it. Keeping the church weird is absolutely essential. If you want to be able to maintain this culture that is dynamic and that offers genuine grace and transformation to the world. Let me close with this. Um, you know Jeff who is playing the bass up here? This is what Jeff wants to be like in 20 years. This is Jeff's, Jeff's icon. Okay, um, this is Malcolm Gwight, and we've cited him a, a great deal. Uh, in the, he's kind of an, an English Christian poet um, who, yeah, writes wonderful Christian poetry. And he was asked recently, "Why do you choose to write um, Christian poems?" And I don't think you need to write. If you're a Christian, you don't need to write Christian poems. You write whatever poems you want. But he gave his answer to why he chooses to write Christian poems to me is a kind of compelling metaphor for what we're all trying to do. He was describing his vocation as a poet. And to me, it describes all of our vocation as a church and as those sent on mission to witness to Jesus. He said this. He said, I could write grungy, dark, shoegazing, bear with me in my agony poetry as well as the next man, you know? But I belong to this tribe of story keepers and believers who have this gospel who live in the teeth of the resistance of a secular society that thinks they're done. So I wrote these sonnets not to be self-expressive, but to give beautiful, memorable voice to the story of my tribe. 
I'm trying to sing the Christian song into the world and make it attractive to the world and draw people in. May our lives and may our community sing that song together. Let's take a few moments and prepare to come to the table.